Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello, I am in great company today with a multi-award winning musical director and conductor, musician and associate director of vocal performance at NYU. Her credits include the likes of associate conductor and vocal coach for Billy Elliot tours in the USA and the rehearsal pianist for Hamilton on Broadway. And her work as a researcher has led her into the field of forensic voice analysis. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Anna Flavia Zuim. Anna, how are you? Hi, Alexa. I'm doing good. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited. And what a bio. I mean, you can go and read the full show notes for that profile. But I'd love to chat about your recent paper that you and your co-authors have had published in the Journal of Voice. Um, So that's titled Vocal Dose and Vocal Demands in Contemporary Musical Theatre. So let's unpack that, if that's okay. But firstly, can you kind of tell me what inspired this study? What were you seeing that you thought, right, we need to kind of look into this a bit? Wow, that's a long answer to a a question, a first question. But the what happened is I've always been fascinated about vocal health and vocal load and how that impacts the quality of the sound, the how effective the vocal coordination of a student is and so on and so forth and in noticing a shift in the repertoire and on broadway as the years went by of course in terms of which styles were more prominent and etc there's not a lot of research on contemporary styles of vocalism especially in belting and uh, styles alike that gives us an indication of how much is too much like if you're singing hours a day or if this show is very demanding and this has been something that has been marinating my head for quite some time with several colleagues in the field, like one of them being Debbie Filan from Australia. She's always talking about, oh, the demand of this row and the demand of that row. And we had several conversations about that. And after I went to the Vocology Institute with Dr. Tietze, who I have the privilege of writing this article with, he's like a mentor and somebody that I tremendously admire. And he is pretty much the pioneer on, on uh, the symmetry research. And... I was just curious to see uh, how much are the students or the singers in a particular production actually using their voice because we don't have a lot of measurements that tells us in a contemporary belting role how much is that versus something else. So our original intent with this paper was that we were going to do both a, a contemporary musical and an opera to also have the opera um, measurements at the same time. Unfortunately, this was the very last musical that we were able to do right before the pandemic hit. And I can unpack this later, but we only have one machine and it takes a long time to collect data because we did eight hours per day of collecting the data and we only had one device. And we did collect quite a bit from the opera, but then the opera had to shut down. And we actually just did the opera again this past month, but we weren't able to do the comparative between the opera and the musical but it was still very enlightening to see what we saw with the musical to at least get a sense of a point of start of how does vocal dose impact both their perception of their vocal effort but also begin the work of developing 
a larger pool of data that will allow us to see across shows, across different types of roles, be that more contemporary nature or more uh, head voicing nature in the musical theater canon or operatic in the opera world as well. Hmm. And your musical was Wonderland, wasn't it, that you studied uh -huh. on? What was the opera? Uh, the opera that we were doing back then, Magic Flute, but I honestly don't recall because we recorded like two or three days of it and then we shut. So yeah. we weren't able to do the same opera back. So we had to do something else, unfortunately. And you mentioned Dr. Ingo Tietze there as one of your co-authors. So who else was involved in this project? Dr. Celia Stewart, she is a professor at the CSD department at Steinhardt in speech pathology and, and she's in the voice field of speech pathology. Great. And you mentioned there that there was a device involved. So can you tell us a little bit about what the study entailed, what the device was and kind of how it was all fixed to the student? Yeah, and the device actually goes back to your previous question, which is the device was also a huge uh, reason for us doing this study because about, I like to say, maybe three or four years ago, I went to Boston and I have a few colleagues at the Harvard uh, Voice um, Center and they are also very involved in doing the symmetry studies. <clears throat> there are lots of uh, developments in that field in their school as well. And in conversation with them, they said, well, we do have this K-Pentax device, the APM uh, 3200. And it's a device that is really hard to come by. They don't make it anymore. It's really not in the market. It's not something that I can call K-Pentax and say, hey, let's just have 10 of those available, you know? And they were gracious enough to say, if you want to collect some dosimetry data, here you go. Like, you can have this for as long as you need to collect data and just let us know what you find. So I'm really grateful. Uh, Daria Schmetta is the person that initiated all of this possibility just with the device itself. So I brought the device I had been exploring with how it was functioning and collecting some data on myself first just to get acquainted with the device. But it wasn't until Celia Stewart and I were in conversation in my office one day and I was sharing with her, I said, I've been playing with this device, would love to see how contemporary vocalism is impacted by the amount of hours. Because if you think about how many shows a week does a Broadway performer has to do, about eight shows with two shows on Wednesday, two shows on Saturday, another matinee, and only the Monday to rest their voice. Because if you think about it, let's say that the Sunday show ends by five o'clock, then they have Monday off and Tuesday to have a show again. It, it's not enough time for eight shows a week plus that. So we were talking about that and we said, well, the show's about to start Wonderland. Why don't we try and get some data with the device that we have? So the process of creating the methodology for the study took a little while because we had to be very efficient and effective with only having one device and checking what exactly do we want to see so that we can get different roles. So we decided to do uh, three and three, three male identifying and three female identifying voices. And one of each of these three being a um, major role, uh, one being a secondary role and one being an ensemble to also see if there's a difference between the three of them. And we did notice a, a little bit of a difference and so on and so forth. So we were able to collect data on three different phases of 
the show. The first phase is when everybody's learning the music, learning the choreography, learning the, the book scenes, and so on and so forth. And during music rehearsal, you have a slightly different demand than the actual day of the show, because then you're doing the entire show. When you're learning music, sometimes you're repeating uh, the same passage multiple times, and so on and so forth. Uh, during choreography, not so much, because sometimes they're learning the choreography without putting it together. So we decided to do the second week as well, which is the week that they were more ready with the material, but not fully uh, fletched yet. So um, we also collected one day per person on that phase. And then the third phase was when we were doing a run of the show, because we couldn't use the device on an actual show day, because the box is rather bulky. It's about this big. So it's not that big or not that small, but it would affect choreography and things like that. So we aim to do the run of the show to not be so uh, intrusive to the per performance and the production itself. And that day was the day that gave us the most accurate amount of data of this is the meant of a show day, you know? And we also collected the full eight hours. So we also picked up what were they doing during the day between talking, <clears throat> going to classes and so on and so forth. So that was really fascinating because it gave us an idea of the demands of the preparation and the run of a show. And then we also did a fourth day, which was outside of the production after they were done and recovered from having sung the performance, but they were also in classes, taking voice lessons and so on and so forth. And we took that as a baseline for, okay, what is the vocal dose of a student on a normal day when they're going from class to class, maybe singing in a choir or in an ensemble? How does that compare to the actual demands of this particular show? Mm, that's so interesting. And what did you conclude from this? Well, so much. The first really interesting finding is that uh, the distance dose, meaning how many cycles of vibration does a vocal fold goes through, but convert it into distance, that was really enlightening to us because when you convert that into miles, the female identifying singers sang approximately 3.23 miles wow. per day. That's more than I can run. <laughs> right? It's a lot. And the male identifying singers, uh, about 2.34 miles. Right. Quite a lot if you think of the demands of your voice on a particular day. Another really interesting finding is that this device gives us the voice range profile, which is a graph that shows the intensity with which somebody's singing the note and how, how many times you're repeating the same note. And it colors the graph based on frequency and intensity of, okay, what are the high notes and low notes that somebody's hitting? And how many times, let's say that I hit my passaggio points, just as an example, more often than my high notes or my low notes, that area in the spectrum is going to be way more darkened uh, than the other ones that are a little lighter in terms of coloring on the, on the graph. So it was interesting to see how the overall overuse of a particular note and the intensity with which that note was sung was very concentrated around or below passaggio, especially for the female identifying roles. And also noticing that area of concentration uh, gives us an idea not only of the distance dose, which also has to do with uh, the strength with which you're producing your vocalism, 
but in regards to if you are singing uh, notes that are more um, producing more aggressive behavior on your mechanism what is the wear and tear and what is your cost benefit from singing that too much or from being able to dose yourself on okay I hit my limit let me give my vocal folds a little bit of time to recover so that was also really interesting and to answer your question on what did we find what did we hope because there are not a lot of studies that gives us markers for what we are looking into there are some studies with teachers and so on and so forth um, the more studies that we can do with specifics of shows and determining what is the demand per role then somebody can actually make a vocal diet of <clears throat> how can they pace themselves to prepare for their for, for that and there are lots of analogies between singers and athletes and the more we can think about being a vocal athlete and thinking smarter in terms of the choices that we're making vocally the better is going to be for the vocal health and the prevention of vocal injury among mm. the population as well Hmm. And there's there's a guy, and I believe his name is Maurice E. Goodwin, um, and he's on the vocal health education courses, uh, giving presentations. And he's he's mentions about pacing the voice, but and relates it to this vocal bank, which I use quite a lot. What's in your bank account today? What can you spend in this lesson? Are, are we are we able to go into this particular area area of vocal quality or what do you have later on in your timetable? You know, are you needing to preserve more there and, and kind of teaching others about preservation and I guess injury prevention? Did you notice if there was any uh, correlation between vocal load and when choreography was included? Was there anything there that you found particularly? So we asked this, the singers to rate how vocally demanding, emotionally demanding, physically demanding the roles were. And they didn't say that it was too demanding, both emotionally and physically. But we did notice just by observing rehearsals uh, that, of course, there's a little bit more of a, a physical exertion when you're singing and dancing at the same time. The singers were also asked to fill out the ease questionnaire which for those who don't know the ease questionnaire basically is a self-assessment of the ability of singing easily and it's pretty much me answering about myself after singing does my voice feel rusty what is the quality that i'm feeling do i feel fatigued etc etc and they actually didn't say that it was extremely demanding for these particular roles and i think that's another question in regards to a singer's perception of their own instrument can give us some indication of how their vocal habits and their vocal health is but because we don't have measurements of they're not getting scoped every week and so on and so forth to see it's a little more subjective you know but it was interesting to notice that they said that it wasn't that demanding especially on the physical side like you asked and what would you assume to kind of see if you could make a, a guesstimate if it was um, a particularly physical or emotional show? Take Dear Evan Hansen, for example, um, that role of, of Evan Hansen. What would you maybe expect to see when that's a little bit more increased? Well, something that I'm finding fascinating just in observing, even in my studio and in general on performances, is that 
and this is just my personal opinion as a voice teacher, uh, I noticed that it's challenging for actors to make use of the two sides of the brain, the right and the left, in the sense of learning the music and learning the acting, putting them together in a way that it doesn't interfere with how you're phonating. And to expand a little bit more upon that, um, it happens all the time that, <clears throat> let's say a singer came in and they're performing a song and they know everything, but they're not communicating through text, right? They're just sing basically singing the melody, singing the song kind of on autopilot. And there's some expression there, but it's not really connecting. Uh, that is only one side of the brain that is functioning, which is the musical aspect of the brain in the sense of, okay, I learned the music, I know what to do, and I'm focusing on giving myself a voice lesson to make sure that my alignment is here. I find that often whenever the material is emotionally charged, singers have a, a little bit more of a hard time not grabbing into more musculature production instead of allowing airflow to assist that process. And when something is not super solidified on their vocal techniques that they can actually produce a healthy belt in a way that is free from tension, flowing through air, uh, the notes are in the pocket, they didn't, they didn't find the right acoustical adjustments to their mouth and so on and so forth. By the time they put the, the charged emotions, charged emotions tend to be more charged in the vocal folds as well in the sense of if I'm mad or if I'm angry or if I'm screaming or if I'm laughing, everything passes through the voice in terms of emotion. And finding ways to minimize that pressure when you are in an emotionally charged way requires the singer to both develop a solid vocal technique in one side and also develop the ways in which they want to communicate through that text so that by the time they merge the two they are not forgetting the lyrics but they're also not letting all the bad habits kick back in because they're not thinking so that process of like autom automating how the vocal coordination needs to happen for emotionally charged sections is really important. And I see that that work is not as fully fletched within the voice studios as I would like to see sometimes. And sometimes you see that translating on, on the Broadway stage, you mm -hmm. know, but there are some really smart singers that figure out for themselves, how can I actually produce this and still be smart about my voice? And one example that I find that is fascinating is actually Southern Foster on Astonishing. If you even look on YouTube, you can find her live performance versus her recording performance. And her belting is slightly different on the same exact note versus a live performance versus a recording, which goes back to the idea you were talking about before of your vocal bank. Like how much do you have in you to perform eight shows a week and produce that highly belted note in the way that you're actually going to do it in the recording. So she was very smart about it and she used a more of a mixed belt strategy that was still very powerful and strong, but you can see that it's not costing her as much as the fully belted version that she's giving on the recording. Uh, the, the device that you used uh, you were using it on, as you say, um, different different people, one device at one time. Um, so how does that kind of take into consideration the individuality of the singer? Because I guess we're all kind of going to have a different experience and you've got your ease reports as well. 
Um, so how how does that help you identify what is going to be a challenging role for an identifying female, for example, where it could be maybe quite tough for one person, but another person would cope very well. So how, how would you go about kind of deciphering that data? So I think there, there are three bullet points to your answer, which one of them is the device itself has a calibration system that first there is um, an accelerometer that goes into the notch right here, which by the vibration and the sensations of the vibration, it, it calibrates how it's interpreting what it's sensing. So in order to interpret that, there is a microphone that if you look on the, on the picture that I posted on the article, there's a microphone about this distance from the mouth. And that distance is the same for everybody so that the microphone can pick up. Uh, when we're doing the calibration, they do from very soft in terms of dynamic volume to very loud so that the device can pick up how is intensity affecting pitch. The device also calculates pitch and frequency throughout the entire day, and it gives you a mean of all of the frequencies. But if you want to isolate in one particular moment, let's say, okay, I know that the rehearsal started at 8 o'clock, and at 8.30, the person sang this one big high number, you can actually isolate into that one number and see, of course, it's way more data challenging to visualize what that looks like. But it gives you a clear picture of, the overall amount of fundamental frequencies that were being used throughout and the the intensity so why am i explaining this because the intensity with which one produces their notes are gonna computate in the amount of distance dose because distance dose takes into account the intensity and the strength and be that a a healthy strength in terms of volume or a pressed strength because we know that if if we're talking about pressed phonation versus flow phonation versus a breathy phonation there is a difference even in the spectrum of the acoustics of how the sound the number of the voice is going to come out and you can get really high um, strength in high harmonics but by a lot of pressure at the same time that you can also get a lot of good high harmonics by a flow production that is healthier for you and it costs you less. So in that way, the device can separate the individuality that way. The other way is that people like me can stop talking, right? So that is going to be picked up by the eight hours that I'm also going to keep talking in between. And that's going to give my pattern of regular vocal behavior throughout the day, both in class, outside of class, talking to my peers, People that are a little bit more conscious of that, they can actually say, okay, I have a three-hour show that I'm going to perform. Let me be a little quieter right now. And you can actually see that represented. So um, while in this study, we did measure the eight hours because we wanted to see a full pattern of the process, uh, it would be really interesting to see if we can get 10 different musicals that are of the same nature, the same contemporary nature, and maybe get Wicked and... Little Women and this and something else that is around the same veins and see just on the performance what is the demand of the role regardless of the individuality of the person of how much they're talking how much they're pacing themselves or not that would be really interesting just to get a sense of how many miles does this role require you to run with your folds throughout everything else versus what is your technique in there in regards to technique uh it won't give us as much of 
the details and nuances of um, how somebody's choosing to use their embouchure to create, to find the pocket for that note. Uh, Dr. Tisa and I are actually working on a secondary study right now uh, related to um, inertograms. And that study is more geared towards the individuality of how somebody's producing a belted note in passaggio and a little past passaggio. So we're checking three different vowels on um, go, m, and here, belting in two different areas of the voice, only for female identifying singers for now, just to get a, a good sense of how belting is being interpreted on Broadway. And we're basically just asking them, okay, belt this as if you're belting a high note at the end of a phrase on a Broadway show, singing this particular word. And we're giving them two notes to do that. And by the calculation of the amount of the openings of their mouth and the, the width, so both horizontal and vertical, uh, Dr. Tita is working on inferring how the tract, based on their anatomy, is actually giving the form and harmonic pairing on how that strategy is either a mixed belt strategy or a full-on belt strategy. And how far are they from, from an ideal match of these form and harmonic frequencies. So we're in the beginning process of that. We have a few participants already in that study and it's been a fascinating journey. I'm actually presenting some preliminary data in about 15 days or so on that study. So that one is kind of like a follow-up study to this in the sense of observing more individual patterns for singers to gain a little bit more of an understanding both of what singers are doing and what is the quote-unquote required belt sound on Broadway right now. Oh, cool. And how can we keep on top of what you're finding? How can we basically stalk you <laughs> and get the results? <laughs> just stalk me. Just send me an email. I'll be more than happy to share. I'm really grateful that you're opening up this space just so that I can share about this study too. So thank you so much. Brilliant. Oh, we'll be on to that for sure. Um, what would you like to see happen from these results in the industry? Hmm. Big long dream vision or just right now? <laughs> you know, give me your dream. Oh boy. I would love to see. So first is I would love to see devices being available <clears throat> that we can have the equivalent of a Fitbit because I don't take my Apple watch away. Apple, uh, you should pick this up as a promo. Um, or, uh, anyhow, I'm just kidding. But the thing of if the, the device was even compared to a vocal Fitbit, but I really do love the idea because I'm always measuring how much I'm walking, running, and exercising, and how many calories I'm using a day, just so that I can be conscious of my own health, right? There's even a mindfulness app that tells you, okay, you meditated this amount of minutes today, and so on and so forth. So we have become data junkies, at least some of us, and critique away, but I do love data. <laughs> but I find that there's fascinating power in knowledge to help somebody become more aware. And once you become more aware of something, you can actually change. It's not until that awareness hits your brain that you go, oh, there's something wrong. There's something that I could be doing better so that I can better my life. And, and in any area of life, I'm not, not talking just voice. So how fascinating would be to see this becoming way more available so that people can actually measure their voices and not just talking singers talking about voice users and voice professionals 
be that a lawyer that uses their voice too much, a judge, a preacher, a teacher, anybody that is using their voice in a, in a way that is taking a lot of demand from their voices, you know? <clears throat> or people that are working in restaurants, like here in New York, restaurants are really loud, and the amount of effort that you have to put on your voice without actually perceiving it just to be heard takes a tremendous toll on the voice. So it would be wonderful to be able to see and to have thresholds of how much is too much, uh, how can I be measuring so that I can protect and prevent injuries and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, the devices are not available or existing yet, but there are some teams working on them. And <clears throat> I truly hope that they come to the market sooner rather than later because then it would make so much easier for us to actually collect data on particular shows and develop the table that I was referring to before. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And on the Fitbit though, you can cheat, can't you? You can just wave your arm around and it picks up steps. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but you know, when you cheat, you know. Yeah, it doesn't feel as satisfying, does it? It's like, you've done your 10,000 steps, I haven't. I've just waved my arm around like a chicken. <laughs> when I play piano, I have to take my, my watch away. Because oh, you say that I ran a mile, and I'm like, I'm sitting here, come on. But there's that awareness of, you can try and cheat something, but you will always know. Uh, I wonder whether these sorts of things would also be really useful for really taking it back to the table of where these shows are created in the libretto, the composer teams, so that they can actually see the demands that they're asking of the singer. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe that's starting to become a bit more prominent for composers um, looking at how much they're asking a singer to do um, as part of their thought process. What, what do you think? Have you, have you come across any, anything like that on, on the writer side? I'm with you on that and we, we try to encourage as many projects as possible here at NYU in terms of uh, composers writing for specific voices and writing for specific parts. It's another level of awareness that with this amount of knowledge we can actually um, infer to and try to encourage in, in the field. However, with that said, Broadway is becoming more and more popularized in regards to how commercial music is infiltrating the style of demand on Broadway. And that has happened, like we know that ever since Hair came to be and Elvis Presley's style was influencing Broadway in a way or another, and so on and so forth. So I don't foresee that that's gonna go away. Also because there is the, the wow factor much like a gymnast that does triple pirouettes and something really exorbitant with their body. They're always going to be the ones that are, they, they get a lot of pleasure out of seeing something really hard to be produced by a human and strive through it and thrive through the process as well. You know, so I do think that there are the two sides of the coin. And uh, like you mentioned, dear Evan Hansen, that is a highly demanding role. And even Ben Platt said in many interviews that, uh, the way he coped was by knowing when to do vocal rest and when to drink, when not to drink, and this and that and the other. So much like an athlete preparing for the Olympics, for example, they will be more responsible for their demands as well as can that change in terms of roles? Yes. Will it go away completely? No, because the style is there and the style is demanding in itself. So I think they're the two sides of the coins and anytime we try to balance like from two very polar opposites, 
finding that middle ground and finding what works better, there's never going to be just one answer or one size fits all to that particular issue, you know. Do you think it's time then that the theatre world introduces job share in terms of it's not just main role and then understudy or swing, it's kind of a job share. Somebody does, right, you're, you're on Monday to Thursday and then you take the role the other days um, and then you still have the understudy roles and, and, and the swings. And I'm just thinking of this from like with COVID still hanging around like a bad smell <laughs> in the West End, we're for sure seeing swings. And I've, we've seen on Broadway, of course, with the music man, um, swings coming in and saving the day. So what do you think? Do you think that we'll see that in the future and, and therefore maybe give more opportunities for the people who are being infiltrated from institutions and their studies into the audition scene? Maybe there'll be more opportunities for them. I love that you asked that question because I think that is a tremendous solution that would be, benefit the singers a lot because their stigma about voice and voice injury is real and differently than in the sport world singers they try not to call out as much as they can and then they push themselves to their limit you know and then they end up losing their voices and then they end up in the doctor's office with polyps and you name it or hemorrhages or you name so that would be actually tremendous to changing the culture surrounding um the stigma about voice because the voice is tiny and it's inside and nobody sees is different than an athlete that all of a sudden says oh i tore my knee and i need to step out and i can't do this and then they have physical therapists and just from the culture of knowing that every show has a physical therapist or a masseuse or something of that nature on staff but they don't have a voice specialist <clears throat> already tells us a big difference between how voice and body are being um seen by producers or the team or the field in itself you know so being developing more of that awareness among the ones that are in charge or being able to see what that how that culture is actually affecting the singers would be a tremendous step and allowing them to like divided roles if it's a role that we find out that they need to run three miles a day vocally then maybe those roles are the ones that should have two singers dividing maybe four performances each or so on and so forth mm -hmm. you know so that would be a tremendous thing i don't i don't foresee how and when the industry would actually make the shift but it's something that i hear a lot of people talking about as being beneficial mm -hmm. and we still see you know the armchair critics or other people commenting on artists when they might not be at the top of their game and um one that recently comes to mind is um bon jovi and and some of the comments he's having now on his tour and uh, the lovely matt edwards actually put something up um as part of an interview for the asbury park press uh, and we'll put a link into that in the show notes uh, just about you know what actually could be contributing here and i know you're a bon jovi fan so i can feel your fury already no, don't get me started like I'm already fuming just by hearing that right here <laughs> because you know the how do you think that we can continue to educate people on this you know not just people in the field but the armchair critics who say ah oh, but living on a prayer doesn't sound like that or what happens to Adele and you know th those judgments 
Well, first you played with the wrong girl because I grew up listening to Bon Jovi on like every single day. My house, literally, I was listening to music that was coming Bon Jovi until three in the morning every day. So it's like in my DNA, my subconscious and conscious, and I would never defend him more than right now. <laughs> but with that said, I, I don't know if educating will solve the problem of critics because critics will always criticize because of whatever motives are in their know how, however much they know about it or not. I do believe that educating can change how the conversation is going to go. I don't believe that that's going to stop uh, critics from criticizing because their internal motives for criticizing sometimes may not even be that Bon Jovi is struggling with something because empathy is something that we, we can get into a whole nother can of worms that I would like to believe that us vocal uh, professionals and people caring for voice professionals that we will be the first ones to have empathy and say how can I help you and whatever struggles you are going through vocally to find better strategies but never be the ones to say you much like an athlete oh you bust, busted your knee while playing that ball really hard in the game and everybody was cheering because they hoped that you would actually hit the ball in the goal you know everybody's actually cheering them on and saying oh how tough they are they are amazing and smart and awesome and people like Bon Jovi have been in the arena playing for decades providing so much happiness and so much joy and bringing so much inspiration to so many people through their music being in the arena for years and years and years the wear and tear of course is gonna get to them much like an athlete is gonna have a wear and tear by the time they are I don't even know Bon Jovi's age but an, an athlete that gets to their 40s 50s or 60s they're not gonna be in the Olympics anymore sometimes you know so I think that's where common humanity comes into play a little bit more and where I get a little less patient with people that don't don't display common humanity and people that are actually in the arena and being vulnerable because it takes a lot of vulnerability for somebody to display who they are because of an expectation of somebody else from who they were in the past when they are in an, maybe a phase in their lives that they are struggling a little bit more vocally for whatever reason, you know, mm -hmm. so I think it goes a long way. And we'll see you on the press, I think, in the news. We're like, oh, that's, that's Anna outside the Bon Jovi concerts with the banner in support. Absolutely. I'll be the first one in the first row. <laughs> oh, it's been so awesome to chat to you. Do you have any resources that you would really recommend us looking up and uh, getting involved with? Ah, that's a good question. And that one you caught me by surprise. I love reading and I love reading about um, vocal health in all senses. So... I can probably think a little bit more about that and send you some articles if you're interested, but nothing comes to mind like as is a specific, just because the Journal of Voice has so many articles that are always coming out. So I would I would start there and then go by topics that are of interest to whatever field of specialty you want to delve more deeply into. Amazing. And um, where can people find out more about you? Um, I have a website, which by the way, I need to update a little bit. It's been a little outdated, but my website has some of my things, some of my articles as well. And I'm really approachable. Anybody wanting to get in touch, uh, there is a contact me button on my website. You can just shoot me an email there too. Always happy to chat and share what I've learned and learn more from the ones that are doing other research and other things in the field too. So. Amazing. Thank you so much. And our love to you and to Broadway. <laughs> Appreciate the opportunity.
Looking to expand your vocal knowledge and add to your teacher toolbox? Then you're in the right place. BAST are here to guide you with our membership, a growing virtual library packed with educational videos spanning a whole host of voice teacher topics. It's just £1 for the first two weeks and £6 each month after that. Now that's what I call a bargain. To join, just head to our website www.basttraining.com.